Tyler, and I am the regional director of a Jesus Missions Ukraine response. Um, we've been driving food into the hardest hit areas that we can get into in Ukraine. And originally we started doing it in Romania, but now we're fully based in Ukraine now. How does that process work? Um, so we get food delivered to our base, uh, which up until recently has been in Mykolaiv in southern Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And we'll get a semi-truck of food delivered. We work with local contacts, usually pastors, um, just because they're trusted, they know their community, um, they know where the needs are. And then we, we load up our vans. We have a mission for that day. Sometimes that mission might be to a community away from the front that's you know got a lot of refugees that we care for. And then other times that will be right out on the front line where they're shelling and it's you know less secure. Um, and we just bring food and drop it off. We usually don't do direct distribution. We prefer to be kind of like a nameless, like a shadow. We don't want people looking at our organization, but we want people um, from Ukraine serving the people of Ukraine and for them to get the credit here. So you're just facilitating the local people to be able to take care of their own. Yes, precisely. Because we could just show up in a village and we don't know if that village has already been serviced. We don't know if those people are double dipping and um, it's just the most effective way that with because we don't have a huge budget so we're trying to maximize what we do and um, We've been able to bring over a million meals in doing that down almost predominantly in Mikolaya What is your background? Um, I was a carpenter before this um, before, I was a I spent a year in Cyprus as a missionary with my family and we ended up doing refugee work there, which we never planned, uh, serving Syrian refugees, uh, people from West Africa. And then I was, you know, during COVID, I was just back home being a carpenter and the war happened. My buddy invited me over to his house and basically tricked me over. He didn't trick me over here, but we had no plans. I went with my wife on a weekend trip and then we ended up flying back or flying straight to Ukraine uh, first week of March. And you've been here ever since? I've been home for about a month since March. Okay. And so I've been away from my family for a good deal of time. Have you thought about bringing your family or? Yeah, so right now I think we're in the process of moving over here. So I have to go home right before Thanksgiving. We're gonna button some stuff up and I think we're gonna jump in full time and we know that this is where we're supposed to be right now, so. Um, what is it, what's it like uh, going out there, driving out in the, in the hot zones? Um, uh, for, ex describe it to somebody who hasn't seen it, who hasn't been there. Well, as far as like visually, um, these areas are hammered. You know, we'll go into some villages where there's not a single building that hasn't been destroyed by shelling or, or fighting, depending on where that village was on the line of contact. Um, a lot of times they're shelling while we're in the village. And so it's, it's definitely not super safe, but Oddly, our team has never felt like in imminent danger. Like, why are there still people there? It's it's a really hard thing for maybe even like for me. I'm an American. It's hard for me to understand because I don't have some 200 year connection to this plot of land that has been somebody's grandma's and their great grandparents, and they farmed it and they have garden and trees that were planted, you know, by their ancestors essentially. Um, and there's a, a, when you talk to the people of Ukraine, there is this intense, like, I don't want to say stubbornness, but that's a word that comes to mind, is that they've already lived under Russian rule, and they're not going to do it again, and they're not going to just give them their land. 
they'll tell you, like, I will die in my house because they've already endured that and been through it. And, and a lot of them are old. They're 80 years old, mm -hmm. and they're like, I'm going to die in my house. I'm not going to go get buried in Poland or somewhere. Like, this is my home. Mm -hmm. I understand that. I, I mean, they've... Well, under the Soviet rule, they couldn't travel. So mm -hmm. most of these people have never traveled yep. more than a few kilometers from their home. And they couldn't even imagine how to do that. They, they don't have a passport. They don't have any money. Uh, so w what are their biggest needs that you see when you go out there? And Food, water, um, especially out east, out east of Kharkiv, Kupiansk area, um, down in Mykolaiv, like the, they've weaponized the water supply. So they've they've basically cut off that drinking water. In Mykolaiv, they haven't had drinking water since early April. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have, like, the whole supply chain in this country broke down overnight because you have people in factories, truck drivers that have been called, either they volunteered or they got drafted, and they're out fighting for their country's freedom. And that was that's kind of what we view ourselves as. Like, we're just stepping into the supply chain. Like, I'm a nobody. We're nobodies. We don't have qualification. Um, we're just trying to fill that gap with, you know, however we can. But mm -hmm. food and water and wood stoves. There's going to be no heating and uh, winter's coming and it's going to be bad. Explain more about that. Uh, well, we have the rainy season. Number one is starting. The roads are turning to mud. I mean, the Ukrainian mud is legendary. Nothing's going to drive through it. Um, but once that ground freezes over come January and the, the snow's falling and it's I mean, frigid. There's no heating. There, there's no gas in some of these places. Um, there's these people in some of these villages that we're starting to service. These people don't have cars. They're farmers that live like out in the middle of nowhere. And um, we're starting to move into areas that humanitarian aid in general is not even getting to, um, let alone wood stoves or people that bring them wood. All mm -hmm. the normal things that they can count on for winter, that's all been disrupted. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to survive this winter without people bringing them, you know, ways to adequately heat themselves, uh, ways to keep warm. So um, you're talking about wood because they don't have any other way to do it. Yep. That's, that's something we're, we're actually working on trying to do is raise money so we can start buying firewood here because we have food. We have food delivered to out east so we don't, we don't want to drive our vans empty from, mm -hmm. you know, where we are now over to the east. We want to be able to bring, whether that's wood, we can get wood for, you know, $250 for a load of six tons of wood. And that might not seem like a ton, but you could keep a couple of houses warm. And a friend of mine that we work with has some guys here in Ukraine building wood stoves for 150 euros a piece. And we can buy those wood stoves here in the capital and we can drive them east in our vans while we're already on our way out there to go and pick up food at our warehouse down there to bring out to villages. And, um, and we can keep a lot of people warm and, and put them in centers that are gonna take care of people. That's great, that's a really good idea. Um, do you, from what you've seen of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military and all that, how, how would you say the war is going? I think there's a great sense of hope right now in Ukraine. Maybe in the early days, there's a little bit of uncertainty. Not a, not a, a cowardice or a fear, but just an uncertainty of what's going to happen. And I think given the events of the last month, like the villages that we're going to are all recently liberated. Um, so there's a great sense right now that 
that they're going to win. That like not only before they had the determination that they were going to fight no matter what, but now they also have this this like feeling of like, oh, we're actually starting to do a lot of good things here. And so you're seeing that and we go into villages that were under rule for under occupation for 200 days, 210 days. And to hear the things that these people endured and now they're on the other side of it. And like they got to see their people come back through their village and liberate them that like maybe four months ago, like when, when they took a zoom, we might've just written that off. Like, Oh, they're never going to get back. Well, yeah. they're back now. And, and that's given the people like a great deal of, of joy and hope. Explain more about what those people endured under Russian rule. So, and these are accounts, firsthand accounts that we've gotten from people from, from mayors of villages. And, um, we've been in villages where, the guy who brought us to that village, they kidnapped his mother and electrocuted her. They, they tortured her underground in a room where they cut people's ears off in front of her, where there were dead bodies lying on the floor. Um, we've been in villages where they won't even talk about it. Like, you'll ask them, and it, they won't even speak about it. Um, we've heard reports of, of rape, not just women, men. We've heard reports of children being raped, of elderly people. like. Every single place that was occupied, we're hearing atrocities. Wow. Uh, so these people, um, according to the propaganda from Russia, are Russians that are forced to live in Ukraine, um, that, that were persecuted by the Ukrainians, that wanted to be part of Russia. Um, I mean, not to get too deep into the politics of it, I, that's not my intention, but do, do you ever look at the propaganda, the, those things that come out and go like, where are they even getting that? Like, Because that's been my sense. A hundred percent. I think when you talk to the people here, before the war, there might have been, I wouldn't say like a sentiment that they were Russian, but there was like a kinship. There's a lot of families on both sides of the border. A lot of that has disappeared because the reality is, is that the people that are suffering the most right now in Ukraine are the people who the Russians are claiming to come and liberate. It's Russian-speaking people that are getting blown up in their house. We live in Mykolaiv, where they're just indiscriminately blowing up apartment buildings. My contact got a bomb dropped in his courtyard like three weeks ago. They blew up his apartment. And so if there was any sentiment that, hey, we're, we're the same, that's gone. Like, yeah. Boom. Perfect. So uh, long term, do you see yourself staying here for as long as it takes or what? Yeah, we're, my wife and I are talking about moving here so that we can basically respond to this crisis as long as needed. What's the hardest thing about this been for you? I think the hardest thing is being away from family, like honestly, in a personal note. Um, and then like talking to some of these people and what they endured mm -hmm. is like, I, I don't believe in like absorbing other people's trauma. That's what they went through. I didn't go through that. But when you see children in these villages that are being shelled while you're delivering food and there's kids playing in the street, like that's rough. I got kids. So that's what brought me here. My, I, I saw the videos of the people pouring over the border and it was women and children and they were alone. And so we originally started doing refugee work in Romania. That's mm -hmm. how this started. We mm -hmm. were. There's three of us that came out and we're just like, let's just see what can happen. And then we, we were initially helping these women and children that were, we were just like a transit point for them to, 
to help move them from one trusted person to the other. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of us got a harebrained idea and said, hey, let's buy some vans. Let's see what happens. And now we have seven vans and um, we've had 40 drivers come out so far and it's been awesome. Wow. Um, the, so, so if people want to help you, if they want to join with you in what you're doing, how do they find you? How do they get hold of you? So you can go to a Jesus Mission dot org slash ukraine a jesus mission dot org slash ukraine yes um and number one every single dime that comes into that account like if you if you feel like you want to give it all goes to ukraine none of us get paychecks to do this we're all volunteers a lot of us spend our own money to fill gas tanks buy hotel rooms so like when we say like every dime that is given to this is getting into either a gas tank to drive our food out or it's buying food or whatever that is, every single dime is going to this effort. Hmm. And then uh, if you want to volunteer to drive, uh, you can apply on that same link and you can say, hey, and, and honestly, we don't have a ton of qualifications. Like if you feel like the Lord is leading you to come and do this, like, you know, we obviously vet people, we interview them, but we take a lot of people that maybe other organizations would say shouldn't be out. We've had retired school teachers. We've taught 19 year old girls who couldn't drive stick how to drive in Ukraine while we're here. And we've watched these people just blossom into, we call them road dogs, like they just turn into savages. <laughs> and um, and we, honestly, you, you will meet some of the bravest people you ever met in your life. And they're somebody who was, you know, uh, working at Panera Bread, you know, four weeks ago. <laughs> Come drive. I mean, that's the reality. Like that's our story. Is like we're we're not all highly qualified. Some of us have like you know we've been through some stuff in the past. It might have prepared us a little bit, but um, ultimately we believe that God's just led us to do this, and that His promise isn't to keep us alive; it's to be with us. And His His promise isn't to keep us alive and safe. It's just that He's going to be with us, and like we're willing. We've all made that choice of like, hey, this might cost us our life, but it's the right thing to do. And I think the world needs, mm -hmm. and not as like a praise to us, but the world needs more people like that. They're like, hey, I'll, I'll put my life aside. I had the best paying job in my life before we came here. And, but there's a need in the world and the world needs people to step up and, and meet that need. And it's, it's one thing to give, it's another thing to get behind the wheel of the van and come out and live an uncomfortable life, but it's good. <laughs>